0: torture Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this podcast to bring you some incredible news. We are under attack. Never before has this reporter seen such devastation, such destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, I fear the time has come for assault of the two-headed space mules. So grab a can of fermented weed and listen up. It may just save your life. fellow space travelers, welcome to Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules. I'm your host, Douglas Arthur, and it's time once again for our annual Halloween episode, uh, wherein uh, I will read to you a classic horror tale from years gone by. Uh, this year, we have a special treat. It is uh, E.F. Benson's uh, infamous uh short story called The Bus Conductor, which was originally published back in 1905 or 1906 in Pall Mall Magazine. Uh, E.F. Benson was a uh, fairly well-known writer of of good repute uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, doing more uh, traditional style uh, novels. He was known for having a bit of a sense of humor in his work. Um, But uh, he was also uh, well-known as a horror writer, mostly in short stories. Um, In fact, uh, H.P. Lovecraft um, lauded his uh, praises uh, in his infamous... Uh, 1927 essay, uh, Supernatural Horror in Literature uh, essay um, that he wrote. And uh, this uh, particular story, The Bus Conductor, um, has been uh, remade uh, several times uh, in uh, modern uh, pop culture. Uh, First, uh, as part of an anthology uh, movie called Dead of Night, which came out in 1945 as a British production. Humorist uh, Bennett Cerf also did a version of this story, a variation, uh, for his uh, 1945 book of uh, ghost stories. Um, More famously and more recently, though, uh, the story was adapted by Rod Serling uh, for The Twilight Zone uh, for an episode called 22, uh, which was... uh, released in 1961 Um, and it featured uh, a a famous line uh, um, where uh, the character said there's room for one more Um, and uh, this was uh, picked up later on by uh, Oingo Boingo in their song Dead Man's Party and um, also famously in an episode of The Simpsons where uh, Homer and bart are sitting on the couch and lisa who is if i recall um quite kind of questioning her place within the family homer kind of looks over at her and uh pats the couch and says there's room for one more and uh, of course that's kind of horrifying for lisa uh, as you can imagine and uh, anyway um it's a pretty it's a pretty famous story and uh we're gonna jump right into it and uh, So why don't you grab yourself a hot cup of cocoa and a bowl of popcorn and uh, snuggle in and and listen to E.F. Benson's 1905 story, The Bus Conductor. My friend Hugh Granger and I had just returned from a two days visit in the country where we had been staying in a house of sinister repute which was supposed to be haunted by ghosts of a peculiarly fearsome and truculent sort. The house itself was all that such a house should be, Jacobean and oak paneled with long dark passages and high vaulted rooms. It stood, also, very remote, and was encompassed by a wood of somber pines that muttered and whispered in the dark, and all the time we were there a southwesterly gale with torrents of scolding rain had prevailed, so that by day and night weird voices moaned and fluted in the chimneys, a company of uneasy spirits held colloquially among the trees, and sudden tattoos and tappings beckoned from the window panes. But in spite of these surroundings, which were sufficient in themselves, one would almost say, to spontaneously generate occult phenomenon, nothing of any description had occurred, I am bound to add also that my own state of mind was peculiarly well adapted to receive or even to invent the sights and sounds we had gone to seek for i was i confess during the whole time we were there in a state of abject apprehension and lay awake both nights through hours of terrified unrest afraid of the dark yet more afraid of what a lighted candle might show me Hugh Granger, on the evening after our return to town, had dined with me, and after dinner, our conversation, as was natural, soon came back to those entrancing topics. "'But why you go ghost-seeking, I cannot imagine,' he said, "'because your teeth were chattering and your eyes starting out of your head all the time you were there, from sheer fright. "'Or do you like to be frightened?' Hugh, though generally intelligent, is dense in certain ways, and this was one of them. Why, of course I like to be frightened, I said. I want to be made to creep and creep and creep. Fear is the most absorbing and luxurious of emotions. One forgets all else if one is afraid. Well, the fact that neither of us saw anything, he said, confirms what I have always believed. And what have you always believed? That these phenomena are purely objective not subjective and that one state of mind has nothing to do with the perception that perceives them nor have circumstances or surroundings anything to do with them either look at osburton it has had the reputation of being a haunted house for years and it certainly has all the accessories of one look at yourself too with all your nerves on edge afraid to look around or light a candle for fear of seeing something surely There was the right man in the right place if ghosts are subjective he got up and lit a cigarette and looking at him he was about six feet high and as broad as he is long i felt a retort on my lips for i could not help my mind going back to a certain period in his life when from such cause which as far as i knew he had never told anybody he had become a mere quivering mass of disordered nerves oddly enough at the same moment and for the first time he began to speak of it himself you may reply that it was not worth my while to go either he said because i was so clearly the wrong man in the wrong place but i wasn't you for all your apprehensions and expectancy have never seen a ghost but i have though i am the last person in the world you would have thought likely to do so and though my nerves are steady enough now "'It knocked me all to bits.' "'He sat down again in his chair. "'No doubt you remember my going to bits,' he said, "'and since I believe that I am sound again now, "'I should rather like to tell you about it. "'But before I couldn't. "'I couldn't speak of it and at all to anybody. "'Yet there ought to have been nothing frightening about it. "'What I saw was certainly a most useful and friendly ghost.' But it came from the shaded side of things. It looked suddenly out of the night and the mystery with which life is surrounded. I want first to tell you quite shortly my theory about ghost seeing, he continued, and I can explain it best by a simile, an image. Imagine that you and I and everybody in the world are like people whose eye is directly opposite a little tiny hole in a sheet of cardboard which is continually shifting and revolving and moving about back to back with that sheet of cardboard is another which also by laws of its own is in perpetual but independent motion in it too there is another hole and when fortuitously it would seem these two holes the one through which we are always looking and the other in the spiritual plane, come opposite one another, we see through, and then only do the sights and sounds of the spiritual world become visible or audible to us. With most people, these holes never come opposite each other during their life, but at the hour of death they do, and then they remain stationary. That, I fancy, is how we pass over. Now in some natures, these holes are comparatively large and are constantly coming into opposition. Clairvoyants, mediums are like that, but as far as I know, I had no clairvoyant or mediumistic powers at all. I therefore am the sort of person who long ago made up his mind that he never would see a ghost. It was, so to speak, an incalculable chance that my minute spy hole should come into opposition with the other. But it did and it knocked me out of time i had heard some such theory before and though hugh put it rather picturesquely there was nothing in the least convincing or practical about it it might be so or again it might not i hope your ghost was more original than your theory said i in order to bring him to the point yes i think it was you shall judge i put on more coal and poked up the fire Hugh has got, so I have always considered, a great talent for telling stories and that sense of drama which is so necessary for the narrator. Indeed, before now, I have suggested to him that he should take this up as a profession, sit by the fountain in Piccadilly Circus where times are, as usual, bad, and tell stories to the passers-by in the street, Arabian fashion, for reward. The most Part of mankind, I am aware, do not like long stories, but to the few among whom I number myself who really like to listen to lengthy accounts of experiences, Hugh is an ideal narrator. I do not care for his theories or for his similes, but when it comes to facts, to things that happened, I like him to be lengthy. Go on, please, and slowly. I said brevity may be the soul of wit but it is the ruin of storytelling I want to hear when and where and how it all was and what you had for lunch and where you had dined and what you began it was the 24th of June just 18 months ago he said I had let my flat you may remember and come up from the country to stay with you for a week we had dined alone here I could not help interrupting. Did you see the ghost here? I asked. In this little square box of a house in a modern street? I was in the house when I saw it. I hugged myself in silence. We had dined alone here on Graham Street, he said. And after dinner, I went out to some party and you stopped at home. At dinner, your man did not wait. And when I asked where he was, you told me he was ill and I thought, changed the subject rather abru- abruptly you gave me your latchkey and I went out and on coming back I found that you had gone to bed there were however several letters for me which required answers I wrote them there and then and posted them in the pillar box opposite so I suppose it was rather late when I went upstairs you had put me in the front room on the third floor overlooking the street a room which I thought you generally occupied yourself It was a very hot night, and though there had been a moon when I started to my party, on my return the whole sky was cloud-covered, and it both looked and felt as if we might have a thunderstorm before morning. I was feeling very sleepy and heavy, and it was not till after I had got into bed that I noticed by the shadows of the window frames on the blind that only one of the windows was open, but it did not seem worthwhile to get out of bed in order to open it though I felt rather airless and uncomfortable, and I went to sleep. What time was it when I awoke, I do not know, but it was certainly not yet dawn, and I never remember being conscious of such extraordinary stillness as prevailed. There was no sound either of foot passengers or wheeled traffic. The music of life appeared to be absolutely mute. But now, instead of being sleepy and heavy, I felt though I must have slept an hour or two at most since it was not yet dawn perfectly fresh and wide awake and the effort which had seemed not worth making before that of getting out of bed and opening the other window was quite easy now and I pulled up the blind threw it wide open and leaned out for somehow I parched and pined for air Even outside, the oppression was very noticeable, and though, as you know, I am not easily given to feel the mental effects of climate, I was aware of an awful creepiness coming over me. I tried to analyze it away, but without success. The past day had been pleasant. I looked forward to another pleasant day tomorrow, and yet I was full of some nameless apprehension. I felt, too, dreadfully lonely in the stillness before the dawn. Then... I heard suddenly and not very far away the sound of some approaching vehicle i could distinguish the tread of two horses walking at a slow foot pace they were though not yet visible coming up the street and yet this indication of life did not abate that dreadful sense of loneliness which i have spoken of also in some dim unformulated way That which was coming seemed to me to have something to do with the cause of my oppression. Then the vehicle came into sight. At first I could not distinguish what it was. Then I saw that the horses were black and had long tails, and that what they dragged was made of glass, but had a black frame. It was a hearse, empty. It was moving up this side of the street and it stopped at your door then the obvious solution struck me you had said at dinner that your man was ill and that you were i thought unwilling to speak more about his illness no doubt so i imagined now he was dead and for some reason perhaps you did not want me to know anything about it you were having the body removed at night this, I must tell you, passed through my mind quite instantaneously, and it did not occur to me how unlikely it really was before the next thing happened. I was still leaning out of the window, and I remember also wondering, yet only momentarily, how odd it was that I saw things, or rather, the one thing I was looking at, so very distinctly. Of course there was a moon behind the clouds, but it was curious how every detail of the hearse and horses was visible. There was only one man, the driver, with it, and the street was otherwise absolutely empty. It was at him I was looking now. I could see every detail of his clothes, but from where I was so high above him I could not see his face. He had on gray trousers, brown boots, a black coat buttoned all the way up, and a straw hat. Over his shoulder there was a strap which seemed to support some sort of little bag. He looked exactly like, well, from my description, what did he look exactly like? Why, a bus conductor, I said instantly. So I thought, and even while I was thinking this, he looked up at me. He had a rather long, thin face, and on his left cheek there was a mole with a growth of dark hair on it. All this was as distinct as if it had been noonday, and if I was within a yard of him. But, so instantaneously, was all that takes so long in the telling, I had not time to think it strange that the driver of a hearse should be so unfunerally dressed. Then he touched his hat to me, and jerked his thumb over his shoulder. "'Just room for one inside, sir,' he said." There was something so odious, so coarse, so unfeeling about this, that I instantly drew my head in, pulled the blind down again, and then, for what reason I do not know, turned on the electric light in order to see what time it was. The hands of my watch pointed to half past eleven. It was then, for the first time, I think, that a doubt crossed my mind as to the nature of what I had just seen. But I put out the light again and got into bed and began to think. We had dined. I had gone to a party. I had come back and written letters. Had gone to bed and had slept. So how could it be half past eleven? Or what half past eleven was it? Then another easy solution struck me. My watch must have stopped, but it had not. I could hear it ticking. There was stillness and silence again. I expected every moment to hear muffled footsteps on the stairs, footsteps moving slowly and smallly over the weight of a heavy burden, but from inside the house there was no sound whatever. Outside, too, There was the same dead silence, while the hearse waited at the door, and the minutes ticked on and ticked on, and at length I began to see a difference in the light in the room. I knew that the dawn was beginning to break outside, but how had it happened then that if the corpse was to be removed at night, it had not gone, and that the hearse still waited while morning was already coming? Presently, I got out of bed again, and with the sense of strong physical shrinking, I went to the window and pulled back the blind. The dawn was coming fast. The whole street was lit by that silver, hueless light of morning, but there was no hearse there. Once again, I looked at my watch, and it was quarter past four, but I could swear that not half an hour had passed since it had told me it was half past eleven. Then a curious double sense, as if I was living in the present, and at the same moment had been living in some other time, came over me. It was dawn on June 25th, and the street, as natural, was empty, but a little while ago the driver of a hearse had spoken to me, and it was half-past eleven. What was that driver? To what plane did he belong? And again, what half-past eleven was it that I had recorded on the dial of my watch? and then I told myself that the whole thing had been a dream but if you ask me whether I believed what I told myself I must confess that I did not your man did not appear at breakfast the next morning nor did I see him again before I left that afternoon I think if I had I should have told you all about this but it was still possible you see that what I had seen was a real hearse driven by a real driver for all the ghastly gaiety of the face that had looked up to mine and the levity of his pointing hand I might possibly have fallen asleep soon after seeing him and slumbered through the removal of the body and the departure of the hearse so I did not speak of it to you there was something wonderfully straightforward and prosaic in all of this here were no Jacobean houses oak-paneled and surrounded by weeping pine trees, and somehow the very absence of suitable surroundings made the story more impressive, but for a moment a doubt assailed me. Don't tell me it was all a dream, I said. I don't know whether it was or not. I can only say that I believe myself to have been wide awake. In any case, the rest of the story is odd. I went out of town again that afternoon, he continued. And I may say that I don't think that even for a moment did I get the haunting sense of what I had seen or dreamed that night out of my mind. It was present to me, always as some vision unfulfilled. It was as if some clock had struck the four quarters and I was still waiting to hear what the hour would be. Exactly a month afterwards, I was in London again, but only for the day. I arrived at victoria about 11 and took the underground to sloan square in order to see if you were in town and would give me lunch it was a baking hot morning and i intended to take a bus from the king's road as far as cream street there was one standing at the corner just as i came out of the station but i saw that the top was full and the inside appeared to be full also Just as I came up to it, the conductor, who I suppose had been inside collecting fares or whatnot, came out to the step within a few feet of me. He wore gray trousers, brown boots, a black coat buttoned, a straw hat, and over his shoulder was a strap on which hung his little machine for punching tickets. I saw his face, too. It was the face of the driver of the hearse with a mole on the left cheek. Then he spoke to me, jerking his thumb over his shoulder. Just room for one inside, sir, he said. At that, a sort of panic terror took possession of me, and I knew I gesticulated wildly with my arms and cried, No, no! But at that moment, I was living not in the hour that was then passing, but in that hour which had passed a month ago, when I leaned from the window of your bedroom here, just before the dawn broke. At this moment too i knew that my spy hole had been opposite the spy hole into the spiritual world what i had seen there had some significance now being fulfilled beyond the significance of the trivial happenings of today and tomorrow the powers of which we know so little were visibly working before me and i stood there on the pavement shaking and trembling I was opposite the post office at the corner, and just as the bus started, my eye fell on the clock in the window there. I need not tell you what time it was. Perhaps I need not tell you the rest, for you probably conjecture it, since you will not have forgotten what happened at the corner of Sloane Square at the end of July, the summer before last. The bus pulled out from the pavement, into the street in order to get round a van that was standing in front of it. At the moment, there came down the King's Road a big motor going at a hideously fast pace. It crashed full into the bus, burrowing into it as a gimlet burrows into a board. He paused, and that's my story, he said. This episode of Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules is brought to you by Sled Dog Beer. Sparkling and crisp, this classic American beer goes down smooth like the frozen tundra. Made from only the finest imported yellow snow, Sled Dog's master craftsmen slow brew this lager with a secret blend of old world spices for a taste that will chill your taste buds like an Arctic wind and refresh your thirst like an open fire hydrant. Next time you're out and your mouth craves a blizzard of flavor, ask for a safety sealed can of America's finest sled dog we watch where the huskies go so you don't have to sled dog it may be cheap but it still qualifies as beer Speaking of not cheap, today's episode is brought to you by Wesley's Hot Cocoa for Cats. Won't you give your cat a steaming mug today? Just mix with milk and watch them purr. It's the perfect winter snack for any feline friend. That's Wesley's Hot Cocoa for Cats. Ask for it by name. Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules is copyright 2016 by Douglas Arthur for Dougside Syndicate. All other content is copyrighted its respective holders and is used under the doctrine of fair use. You can contact the show by sending email to spacemules at yahoo.com or you can follow us on Twitter at spacemules and head over to Facebook to check out the official Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules fan page for all the latest news, shows, and celestial ephemera. And don't forget to check out Cafe Press com slash space mules for all your space mules swag t-shirts hats coffee mugs you name it we have all the highest quality merchandise you can shake a zuni doll at be sure to subscribe on itunes so you'll never miss an episode all previous episodes are available to stream or download at SpaceMules.wordpress.com. thanks for listening i really appreciate it be sure to tune in next time when you'll hear my brother say what are the names benny the hump Roland Carpiti and Izzy the Nose mean to you.